Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. With Father Bernard Utley, OSB. Father, thank you for joining us to do this show. You're welcome. Happy to be here. And uh, my apologies in advance to listeners for uh, the quality of my voice. At least I'm uh, fighting a, a pretty bad cold, but uh, looking forward to doing this show, which is going to be full of uh, all sorts of very uh, useful information. Uh, so I'm lo- looking forward to it. But uh, before we dive into the spiritual life, uh, this show is underwritten by True Restoration with articles, books, and videos available at truerestoration.org. And while uh, some of our operating costs are uh, underwritten by True Restoration by way of the very modest profits it makes uh, from uh, selling books and uh, interviews, our show and the network broadly are truly listener-supported. We have annual radio subscriptions for subscribers of varying levels, depending on your means and are available by clicking the donate button at truerestoration.org. Restoration radio programs, including this one, are available on www.restorationradionetwork.com and are syndicated on iTunes and Stitcher. You can follow the work of True Restoration on all social social media channels, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Flickr, LinkedIn, and Pinterest by following us using the social buttons on truerestoration.org. You'll also find a link there to Trad Circle, the social network founded in 2008 by Father Anthony Chicada and moderated by True Restoration staff. Uh, one of its original purposes was to enable young people who feel called to marriage to meet like-minded types, but uh, it's also more of a, a, a Catholic alternative to Facebook. Uh, being a great, safe place to make new friends and have discussions. Uh, People of all ages are welcome, and by no means do you need to be single or looking for marriage to go to that site. So uh, thanks again, Father, for joining us. Uh, And uh, I know uh, before we launch into our discussion of the spiritual life, you wanted uh, us to begin with a prayer. So perhaps I could ask you to lead us in that. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. And thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who didst instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant that by the gift of the same spirit we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Father. And uh, I I know uh, when we were talking in the pre-show about this episode, you said that um, you wanted to make a bit of a clarification on uh, something you said in our introductory show in uh, December Mm -hmm. uh, as regards Mm -hmm. uh, the necessity of spiritual reading. Right, right. Uh, My parting advice in that first introductory show was in regards to the practice of daily spiritual reading and which I find to be so important for the spiritual life. And I quoted St. Alphonsus Liguri to the effect that it is even uh, morally necessary for salvation um, to do some spiritual reading. And that is a, a hard statement, a harsh statement perhaps. And, uh, 
but I wanted to clarify this because there are certain individuals of goodwill, serious Catholics of various degrees, who find it very, very difficult to do spiritual reading. Some people just have a hard time with books. It could be dyslexia. It could be another learning difficulty, it's, uh, poor eyesight, or whatever be the sincere reason they have a difficulty. I don't want uh, such people to be discouraged by that statement of St. Alphonsus. So I, I, I personally know many people that they would if they could, but they just can't. They can't bring themselves to do that concentration uh, for one reason or another. And obviously, uh, it is somewhat hyperbolic to say that, that it is morally necessary for salvation. It is not absolutely necessary, of course, for salvation to do to be good at spiritual reading, and that includes even the Bible. Obviously, throughout the centuries, uh, many souls have just been illiterate or or not able to afford books, or and obviously they could save save their souls. So, I think it would be more accurate to say that without prayer, it is morally impossible to save one's soul. And the saints say this as well. It is just that spiritual reading is one of the greatest means of nourishing one's prayer life. It has become the normal means uh, in these recent centuries, I think, of growing in a solid spiritual life. And I think especially in these days, uh, we do need spiritual reading more than ever. I think never before have Catholic minds been attacked and inundated by unchristian principles every single day of their lives as they are today. And we need protection against these ideas. We need to clean our minds and imaginations and nourish our minds and reset our minds uh, with good, wholesome reading. So, But for those who simply find spiritual reading way too difficult, don't despair uh, reading sanctity. Prayer is the most important thing in the spiritual life. If you cannot read, then just pray with greater sincerity and fervor in your will, and God will bless that. And for those who cannot read, I find it very difficult. That's, I think, another reason, isn't it, Nicholas, that uh, this True Restoration Radio Network was founded is to reach Catholics uh, in this day and age where people are more inclined to listen to talks over the Internet or, or they can download it, put it on their MP3 player or iPod and listen to it while they're working or traveling or relaxing or cleaning or whatever. So basically, for those who can read, read. Read from spiritual books every day. And for those who can't, and even for those who can, listen to talks. Listen to talks. At least listen to sermons. Try to listen to sermons and talks to nourish your faith. At least make the effort. And that is what God's looking for, the effort. God doesn't demand the impossible, but reading is a great aid. And I think for those who can, no one should neglect spiritual reading, because if they neglect it, they neglect one of the most powerful means for growing spiritually. Uh, it should not be neglected lightly. Uh, without a serious reason. Uh, it is something that uh, you you develop a taste for over time. It may be difficult to get into the habit at first, but it's well worth the effort developing a taste for it. So I just wanted to make that clarification so no one would be discouraged before we even begin our discussion on the spiritual life. All right. Well, thank you for that, Father. And uh, you're right, as you say, that's one of the reasons uh, we've made Restoration Radio Network is because it can be very difficult to find time to read all the various different things that we need to read, and uh, you know, this allows people to listen in their car. I know I listen to a lot of the shows that I'm not a host of uh, as I'm commuting to and from work or while I'm doing the dishes. So uh, I, I thought, Father, since uh, we've 
we're talking about spiritual reading again right here at the beginning of the show. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, tell us uh, who some of your favorite spiritual writers are to mm-hmm. give some ideas to our listeners. Okay. Well, over the years uh, at the monastery, you get introduced to so many different spiritual writers, and I have many uh, favorite spiritual writers who have influenced me over the years. And, uh, you know, over my radio shows here, I'm going to be quoting from them profusely. Uh, I include St. Francis de Sales, um, St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, and many other saints. Um, but there's also a lot of uh, non-saints, a lot of other priests and religious that were just great spiritual writing, writers like Father Gergou Lagrange, uh, Father Aaron Taro, Father Sodrew, um, Father Sende. Victorino Ascende really affected me. Father De Cassade is excellent. Father Gabriel Diefenbach and was highly influenced by Abbot John Chapman of the 1930s, a great Benedictine abbot. Uh, his spiritual letters are just, just priceless. And there are many, many other excellent spiritual writers, particularly from the 1900 to 1960. There's some really good spiritual writers, uh, some real gems. But I think I think the one of the most influential spiritual writers in my life has to be Father Edward Lean. Uh, he stands out amongst spiritual writers, in my mind, in my view, uh, spiritual writers that have not yet been canonized as saints. But he stands out as a real master of the spiritual life, uh, a man who knows his doctrine, and he presents it very well. He gets to the heart of the matter. And that is why uh, I wanted to take the next few shows uh, and take some of his books as guides, uh, using them as outlines. And I could have chosen many other fine Catholic books for this. There, there are many good seminary textbooks on ascetical and mystical theology out there that would have, I think they would have set out uh, everything in a very systematic way, but I, I feared that they might have been a little boring, a little dry. Uh, so I'd rather take one of these excellent spiritual reading books by Father Lean and just comment on it. Just go slowly through it. Um, there'll be many important points not covered in his books. It doesn't mean that these points are not important, but it's just you can't deal with everything at once. We can't cover everything in one show or 10 shows or even, I think, 100 shows. There's, there's so much to discuss. But And the last thing I want to do uh, in these radio shows is to be original. When you're dealing with theology or the spiritual life, originality is not a good thing. It is dangerously close to heresy. Um, So I certainly want to make sure that everything I say really has been said before by older, uh, approved, and well-respected authors. But I'm sure perhaps I'll deal with some of these subjects um, or approach certain topics in in maybe a fresh way that many people have not been introduced to before. Hmm. Now, uh, Father, I have to admit, before we started talking about this show, I'd never heard of Father Lean. Uh, how did you mm-hmm. uh, first? How, how did you first uh, uh, become introduced to his work? Um, I was first introduced to Father Edward Lean uh, when I was a novice at uh, Christ the King Abbey, uh, probably twenty years old, and and one day uh, Father Abbot. Uh, Leonard Gerardina, he just handed me one of Father Lean's books, and he's in, it was it was called In the Likeness of Christ. 
And he wanted me to read one chapter out of there called, uh, entitled The Triumph of Failure. Uh, maybe, perhaps I was going through a hard time at, at that uh, part of my life, that time of my life. But he wanted me to read this one chapter, and it blew me away. It was so beautiful. It was so. It was. It was just perfectly describing my own feelings at the time, my own my own trial. And this chapter has done the same thing for many other people when they read it. Uh, it it's considered one of the best out of the whole book. You know, worth the whole book. Uh, the triumph of failure, uh, because he just Father Lean describes the experience of a soul so well that you're like, that's me, that's me. Uh, but usually Father Lean was not given to novices because it was considered, uh, you know, meat. It was a little bit too, too uh, tough just for a beginner to just take directly. Uh, but for one reason or another, Father Abbott felt I should read it. And I will be always grateful to him for introducing me to, to Father Lean because his books, his books really deepened my understanding of the Catholic faith. Before I entered the monastery, I was studying the faith uh, for three years before I entered. I, you know, almost every day, just keep reading, reading, reading. And I thought I knew the faith. I thought I knew. But when I was introduced to Father Lean, I realized I don't know anything. I don't really, I don't understand the deeper mysteries of the faith, the purpose of the faith, the spiritual uh, implications of the faith, until I read Father Lean. He has the gift of taking all these doctrines, even philosophical things, and directing everything towards spiritual union with God. All the mysteries of the faith, all the words of Christ, all the events in our Lord's life. Um, he, for instance, I remember being blown away by uh, Father Lean's chapter on the resurrection of our Lord. You know, normally, uh, before that, I was just approaching the resurrection as a, uh, from apologetics. Uh, it's an apologetic proof for the divinity of Christ, and you go through all the different steps proving it and what it means. And the, all those things are true, but Father Lean presented it in a way of, in, in its purpose and relation to our own sanctification. And he didn't speak of anything new. It's simply what's there in the New Testament, but things that we overlook. And it really, it really spoke to me. And uh, all through Father Lean's writings, he really opens up St. Paul. St. Paul can be very, very difficult to understand sometimes. But when Father Lean explains the text from St. Paul, you're like, oh, that's so clear. That's so deep. There's so much there. And St. Paul takes on, on a, such a, a beautiful depth uh, of meaning after you read Father, Father Lean. Hmm. So re Father Lean stood out immediately that this man really knew the faith. And he didn't just repeat what other people are saying. He really understood it. He gave you uh, uh, the, meat and the meat and potatoes of the faith. I use that phrase a lot because that's what it is. Just the meat and potatoes, the bit, not just fluff. It wasn't just pious piffle. It was solid truths, basic truths of the faith, but solid uh, to nourish your spiritual life. So um, I owe so much to Father Lean, I think, uh, more than any other spiritual writer, I think. Well, um, but before we uh, go into Father Lean's work, uh, uh, I'm sure that many listeners, maybe like myself, uh, don't know a lot about him. Uh, I wonder if you could give us uh, just a brief biographical sketch of who he was, Father. Okay. 
I don't think much needs to be said concerning uh, his life too much. It, it wasn't necessarily a life full of any extraordinary events or achievements, except uh, his wonderful spiritual writing, writers, writings. So um, let me just briefly sketch his life. Father Edward Lean was born in 1885. And in 1908, he entered the Congregation of the Holy Ghost, known as the Holy Ghost Fathers. And this is the same order, by the way, that Archbishop Lefebvre entered in 1931 and became eventually became the Superior General of in 1962. So it's the same order. In uh, 1912, Father Lean was sent to Rome to study theology at uh, the renowned Gregorian Pontifical University. And he was, a, he was an exceptionally brilliant student. Uh, and, he, and he had the, the uh, uh, I can't think of the word, he, he studied under uh, such eminent theologians as uh, Cardinal, Cardinal Louis Biot and Father Maurice de la Tau. Uh, he earned uh, a Doctor of Divinity with the highest credit, uh, summa cum laude. In addition, he, he earned uh, a, the Pius X Gold Medal for Special Excellence in Dogmatic Theology, which you see uh, in his writings. He, he inclined towards dogmatic theology and to pull out the spiritual implications of the dogmas of our faith. Uh, after ordination, he spent uh, a few years as a missionary in Africa, which kind of matured him, you know, to see to see how souls reacted on the front lines uh, in the missionary field. Uh, but then he returned to Ireland to spend the rest of his life as a, a teacher in a couple of the colleges and seminaries uh, run by the Holy Ghost Fathers. And in 1931, he was appointed professor of ethics and psychology, which he particularly excelled at and enjoyed. He was much sought after as a spiritual director of the, uh, for the seminarians, and as a retreat master for many, many uh, convents of nuns. So he gave many retreats. Uh, but he became most well-known for his spiritual writings. And in 1935, uh, Father Lean published his first spiritual book, Progress Through Mental Prayer. Uh, it was immediate success. It was a bestseller. And it caused somewhat of a sensation because it was so good. It was different than the average spiritual book. It was deeper. The author didn't just regurgitate pious cliches and flowery words, but rather he teaches solid spiritual doctrine. He, um, here was an author who seemingly came out of nowhere. People didn't, uh, but he was immediately seen to be, and, and he was called a master of the spiritual life, even immediately. You know, I've read various book reviews in old Catholic periodicals that concerning Father Lean's books, and every one of them, every one of the, review, the contemporary reviewers were using this type of language describing his books. Uh, he was a master of the spiritual life, which is odd. You don't get that in many spiritual writers. And after this first book appeared, several other books rapidly appeared, all of them very excellent works, each a, a, really a spiritual and literary triumph. Uh, works, the sequel to... Uh, Progress Through Mental Prayer was entitled In the Likeness of Christ. Then there was the book, The Holy Ghost. Then he wrote his personal favorite of his own writings was the book called Why the Cross. And then he wrote true, The True Vine and Its Branches. And then The Church Before Pilate. And he meant The Church Before Pilate does not mean previous Pilate, but in, in, in Pilate's presence 
as our Lord was uh, in, the, in before Pilate being judged by him. So the church is judged by the world. So there are also a few works published posthumously that contain sermons or retreats that he gave. Uh, two of these works are called Retreat Notes for Religious. And then there's a book called The Voice of a Priest, which contains some of his uh, sermons. And by the way, his, his brother James was also Holy Ghost Father. And his brother James became an archbishop as well. And Archbishop James Lean was also highly influenced by the doctrine of his brother. And they pretty much said the same thing. They, they reflected each other. They said the same, they had the same spiritual doctrine. And Father Lean published one of his brother's retreats under the title uh, By Jacob's Well. And you can see Father Lean's doctrine all through the retreat. It's basically Father Edward Lean uh, spoken by his brother. And that was a very popular book in its day as well. So I consider that book more or less a Father Lean's book, Father mm. Edward Lean's. Unfortunately uh, for us, I think, Father Lean died relatively young in 1944 at the age of 60. So in less than 10 years of writing, he really accomplished a lot. Uh, I think it's sad that he didn't live a little longer uh, in order to write more more wonderful books, but that was uh, God's will. And although he his life was um, relatively uneventful. He was a very holy and faithful priest. Uh, he was a beloved teacher, writer, retreat master, and spiritual director. And one of his biographers said this, that in his earlier days, he was extremely ascetic, very disciplined, mortified, penitential, uh, really in the awesome rigor of the old Irish ascetics, you know, very, very ascetical. But the biographer said that as he grew older, he mellowed out at the end to a more Benedictine mode of spiritual life, which I thought was funny to read, being myself Benedictine. Perhaps uh, you could say a more simple interior life, a balanced, moderate spiritual life without any extremes. At first, when he's young, it's all the enthusiasm. He goes to extremes, and then he says, wait, I'm going to have a more balanced spiritual life. Um, and I wanted to add that uh, that Father Abbot Leonard Giardina used to say to me that back in the 1940s and 50s, Father Lean, he remembers Father Lean being highly respected as a spiritual writer, and that there were sayings going around about Father Lean. And the only one he remembered at the time was this, that Bishop Sheen was the speaker, but Father Lean was the thinker. That's what everyone was saying at the time. Bishop Sheen was a tremendous preacher, but Father Lean's books really affected people. Uh, and there was also at my abbey, we had a, an old Trappist lay brother come to live with us. Uh, he, he spent the last years of his life at the abbey. His name was Brother John Collins. He died in uh, 2010. But he entered the Trappist monastery uh, back in 1952. And in those days, his abbots would also highly recommend Father Lean's books. And he said uh, the saying that he remembered were this, humorously, he said, you can get fat off lean. That was the phrase going around. And also another favorite was lean on the Holy Ghost. So, and that is what I wanted to do today. It was lean on the Holy Ghost. Right. Um, so there definitely, he, he, he definitely affected people uh, back then. Mm. Yeah, it, it's surprising to me now that I've started reading some of his work and uh, seeing how good it is. Mm -hmm. uh, as promised by yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when you say that he was well-known 
before Vatican II. It's yeah. a bit surprising to me that he's completely unknown, or at least it seems well, well, in my experience, seems he's completely unknown in traditional Catholic circles. I mean, today yeah. everyone knows who Bishop Sheen was, but uh, right. as right. I said, I'd never heard of Father Lean until uh, right. introduced to him by you. Well, I think it, it might be because after the changes in the 1960s, I mean, they wanted to destroy everything from the past. So basically, they just disappeared. Very few names from the past made it through. Bishop Sheen uh, was famous because he was still speaking in the 70s, right? He died in right. like 78 or 79. So he was still popular in that way. But Father Lean was perhaps more scholastic, more, more the theology of the Council of Trent. And they didn't want that. Right. So his views would not fit with the new ecumenism. Right. So and probably was, that's one. Yeah. Well, well, I was going to say, and he was spared uh, living long enough to see Vatican II. So he, he'd already been gone yeah. for a little while when the changes started. Absolutely. And and since Father Lean's books are, are so good, they're so rich, uh, I don't want to rush through them. You know, hopefully we'll be doing these shows for the at least the rest of this year and perhaps into more years. So I think it's wise just to take it slow and and to just explain some of his doctrines more fully. And I wanted to summarize some of it, simplify some of it, hopefully, to explain it and then apply it. And I'll add, I'll comment on it. And, and I think Father Lean's thought is so rich that it's it's worth the time. Um, there's, there's no point in in rushing through this. I... I... I agree absolutely, Father. Um, but one last point that I think is worth making, um, perhaps because mm-hmm. uh, once burned, twice shy, traditional Catholics tend mm-hmm. to be rather skeptical, and they'll look to the fact that a lot of the modernists were around and writing things before Vatican II, and uh, obviously Vatican II didn't come out of nowhere. We did receive one email from a, a listener when we first announced the show saying that they'd heard that Father Lean had gotten into trouble with uh, church authorities at some point, and therefore they thought that we shouldn't be discussing his works. And the, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I think it's worth mentioning briefly mm-hmm. what, you're, uh, what you found when you, you looked into that. Yeah, I was surprised to hear that. I, I, I never heard that before. Um, and I did look it up. I, I found a little bit uh, concerning that. What I think it was, was mainly this, that he wrote an article concerning on the Mass, and he dealt with the, the topic of, of what was called the priesthood of the laity. And some, uh, he might have said something that was maybe exaggerated or, or something that a, a censor who read his works objected to. So every time a priest would, would write something in theology or the spiritual life, you submit it to a censor who, who, who may be set up by the diocese or your own religious order before it was published to make sure that there was nothing against faith or morals. So I think many times a, a book would be returned saying, we don't, you know, you have to change this or it's not going to be published. Uh, it was just a normal thing. It doesn't mean that he was condemned by the church. Uh, he wasn't excommunicated. He wasn't condemned. It's just perhaps criticized by his views. There, there is a legitimate different, 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 uh, differing views on certain theological topics, and maybe one censor just did not want his, uh, Father Lean's opinion uh, voiced, or he had a reason why he objected to it. And Father Lean totally submitted 
he, he wrote a thing going, I submit completely to the judgment of the church. I would never want to write anything contrary to the faith. So that's where it ended. It's, it's simply that. But Father Lean did feel that in Ireland, his name was somewhat hurt. Uh, and so most of his books were first published in, in uh, Europe and in North America before they returned to Ireland to become classics there. So I don't think it's anything to be worried about. He certainly was never condemned for modernism. I think, I think because he was a student of that father, that famous Jesuit theologian, Father Maurice de Letal, who who was a tremendous theologian and wrote much concerning the Mass, the theology of the Mass. Uh, but there's he, uh, this Father Maurice was had certain theological opinions that differed from other theologians. So there was conflict. There was different differing of uh, of opinions at the time, and that's probably all that this was with Father Lean is that he just said something that someone objected to, uh, and he submitted. And so that was case closed, I think. As far as I'm concerned, there's nothing to be concerned about. Yeah, and it sounds like as even a worst-case scenario, all it does is it underscores the vigilance of the pre-Vatican II Church, which is a good thing. And maybe that... I mean, anybody can write something with imprecision or write something that could have been worded better. So, mm-hmm. and uh, his his response is probably more important than than what he wrote. Right. And uh, I don't yeah, think yeah. anyone could ask for right. a better response than that. Right. And all his books got imprimaturs uh, from the 1930s and 40s. So, uh, you know, you can maybe argue, okay, start, maybe books that were and for modern, uh, 58, 59, 60, yeah, people start wondering. But, you know, we can't live in that uh, that world where we doubt everything. Uh, and we, we have to reinvent the wheel every time we approach a, a spiritual writer. There's great theologians and spiritual writers before Vatican II, and uh, they were totally orthodox. And we shouldn't question everyone and uh, reinvent the wheel every time. Right. Well, uh, with that said, Father, perhaps uh, we can get into the book that you want to start your discussion yeah. on. You uh, uh, indicated yeah. <clears throat> earlier in the show that uh, we're going to start with The Holy Ghost by Father mm-hmm. Lean. Uh, the subtitle of that book is uh, it's The Holy Ghost and His Works in Souls. And uh, right. uh, I have, uh, it was published uh, the 13th of April, 1937, and received... Uh, Imprimatur mm-hmm. uh, that that same year. Um, mm-hmm. so it's from, the imprimatur is from uh, the uh, uh, provincial of uh, of his order, uh, where mm-hmm. uh, I guess of Great Britain. That's where it was uh, first printed. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, if you want to to start us, okay, we can book. start. What I wanted to do is start with Father Lean's introduction. He wrote a rather lengthy introduction that uh, I believe has uh, some points I wanted to pull out, and we'll spend some time on um, just his introduction today, uh, and we'll get into Chapter 1. I really wanted to get into Chapter 2, which deals with the Holy Trinity, but I don't think we'll have time today, so I'll just do the best I can uh, with uh, the introduction in Chapter 1. Uh, Father Lean's book on the Holy Ghost um, it was not his favorite work. I think it was a little bit more uh, academic, a little bit more uh, uh, abstract. 
a little bit more theological and dogmatic, uh, but not as warm. It wasn't the doctrines that maybe um, that he felt uh, uh, more close to. He really he really loved his work on why the cross. He does a great job on on showing why we have to suffer with Christ. Uh, but he did have this desire to write um, on the Holy Ghost because he's part of the Holy Ghost Fathers. He wanted people to understand the marvels of the spiritual life, the marvels of divine grace. It, this has had uh, affected him greatly, uh, knowing the the, the great uh, the greatness of interior union with God. And so, in Fatherling's introduction. He begins it by, he makes a reference to what he considered a, a general feeling at the time amongst the, the thoughtful, amongst, amongst the civilized world at least, that, that there was a feeling of uneasiness, of uneasiness at the time, a, a vague sense of more or less impending doom, that something was about to happen, a, a, a crisis. And you would think that uh, since this book was published in 1937, that obviously he was referring to World War II you know, a war of catastrophic proportions, but I don't think he meant a physical war uh, or the the physical hardships or a financial crisis coming. Uh, he, actually, he makes it quite clear that what he meant was that there was a coming, a conflict of epic consequences of a spiritual nature, that there was coming a spiritual crisis. So I wanted to just to quote a few lines from him where he describes this future conflict. Quote, uh, Few there are who can be ignorant that the world, unless there be some extraordinary intervention of divine providence, seems about to be submerged under the foul waters of a deluge, which will cause a ruin far more dire in nature and extent than that caused by the flood from which but Noah and his family escaped. In the great disaster that befell the human race in the days of the patriarchs, it was only the corporal life of men and beasts that perished. Now it looks as if they were about to sweep over all the civilized peoples of the world, a philosophy which threatens to corrupt utterly the minds, the hearts, the manners, and the morals of all men, unquote. And in the next few pages or so, Father Lean goes into what he believes that the primary, what the primary menace threatening the world was at the time. And he believed it was communism, or rather the, not from a military point of view, but from a philosophical point of view, the philosophy of communism was the greatest threat. The philosophy of materialism and naturalism, uh, where it, it uh, rejects God in the practical order. It denies all religious values, spiritual values, moral values, that this philosophy uh, will flood the world and destroy it. Not just bodies, but flood uh, and destroy, more importantly, souls, millions of them, you know, billions of them. And, in fact, that's really what happened. But he sums up this philosophy beautifully with one line of scripture. And he quotes, he says, on bread alone doth man live. So really, that's communism in a nutshell. They believe that on bread alone doth man live. So the things of this world. And uh, this, Father Lean sees this as a direct challenge and contradiction to the, to the teaching of our Lord, to the philosophy of our Lord, the philosophy of life that our Lord taught us. Our Lord said, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So our Lord was showing that, that, that we need supernatural revelation. We need to be dependent upon God. We need supernatural religion. That this world is not the most important concern, but rather the next life. Uh, but the world, 
has been infected with this poison this of materialism and naturalism, uh, that this world is all there is. And that thinking of heaven and thinking about God and supernatural truths is really escapism. And the world wants us to forget all that, that fairyland stuff. And they want you to live for this world, to build a utopia in this world, this world, this world. That's what keeps, that's the, it's, dry, it's repeated to us every single day. Think about this world and mankind and humanity and the earth. Uh, that is the philosophy of the world today. There's nothing supernatural about it, nothing otherworldly uh, about, you know, the, the great masses of humanity just think for this world. Right. Even and what was considered Christendom, right? Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. You're, what you're describing sure sounds like the the doctrine of the Novus Ordo sect and yeah, their leader actually, who yeah, says was, that the, great, the greatest evils in the world today are uh, youth, uh, poverty, and the loneliness of the elderly. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's what I was just going to say. That what, what, what struck me in reading this prediction of Father Lean is that it was far worse than he would have ever imagined. His words were almost, I think, prophetic. Uh, look at what happened to our church. Look what happened to his beloved Catholic church in less than 30 years. You know, our, our Blessed Mother at Fatima warned that if Russia was not consecrated to her Immaculate Heart, then Russia was, would spread her error throughout the world. And we know now that included the Church. And that Freemasons and Modernists and Communists and all the enemies of the Catholic Church have infiltrated her and they practically destroyed her. Not completely, of course, but they destroyed her as an institution from within. And you look at Vatican II, like you said. And its aftermath, look at its philosophy, the underlying values of the new church. What's its theme? This world, this world, this world. We have social work. We have ecumenism. We just have peace, goodwill towards men. It's a new age of man. And we just think about humanity. Uh, it's materialism. Really, it's naturalism. It's not supernatural. It's all about just peace on earth, but not, but, but not a supernatural peace with God by holiness of life and the rejection of sin. Uh, so the, really the only sin today is the sin against humanity, a, a social sin. That's what we have. And <clears throat> I think it's significant that, uh, you know, Pope Pius XII himself, uh, when he died in 1958, he feared this spiritual flood was coming, and he, he knew it was coming. And he, and he was holding it back almost as long as he was alive. But be, before he died, I don't remember the exact date when he said this, but he said, after me comes the flood. That's very significant for a pontiff to say. After me comes the flood. It's going to be bad. He knew it was. And I think it's significant that Father Lean compares this impending crisis to the flood uh, in which only a few were saved. Our Lord said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And I think it's similar to this this flood of modernism, that only a remnant has remained true to the Catholic faith, and even fewer still have retained the spiritual life. Our knowledge of the spiritual life has been washed away, drowned in the sea of modernism and worldliness. And that's, 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 that's tragic. That, that's a, a, a catastrophe. Um, and Catholics, <coughs> even traditional Catholics, have been severely affected by this flood. It's very easy uh, to profess the truths of Catholicism, and yet not possess a true Catholic spirit, uh, to really uh, profit by our adherence to the teachings of the Catholic faith, it's necessary to embrace the faith with more than just the intellect. 
the faith has to be embraced with, with your heart, your whole, all of one's soul. And although it's excellent to possess the true faith, it's, it's a great misfortune to practice the right religion wrongly, or at least inadequately, not to use the truths that we have. And this is precisely what we will be if we only submit our mind to the truths of the faith and not live in the spirit of the faith. Uh, and, and when you live in the spirit of the faith as a saint would, uh, your instinctive attitude of soul, your disposition of mind, um, it, it affects the manner of your judging and your viewing and your weighing of things, estimating things, reacting to the events of life. Uh, it affects everything and colors everything, but we don't have that anymore. We, it's still just in the mind uh, with some of us not affecting our, our everyday lives. And I, Father Lean, again and again in his writings, uh, and even in this introduction, he laments the fact that Catholics, uh, without any serious misgiving, misgivings, they, they allow themselves to be more or less comfortably swept along in the current of everyday life and by the spirit of the modern world. I know many of the other shows on True Restoration deal with these topics, so I'm not going to go into them uh, deeply. But it is significant for the spiritual life. You know, it's true as traditional Catholics, we, we hold to certain definite religious truths or doctrines, and we, we tenaciously cling to certain traditional Catholic practices. But apart from actions that are specifically religious, such as reception of the sacraments and attendance at Mass, the life of the ordinary routine Catholic is very similar to, if not exactly the same, as those who have not even the slightest trace of Christian principles. And, and our views and our aims and, and their worldly ambitions and their judgments and their tastes and their interests and their fashions, their amusements, their pursuits, present uh, no contrast, no striking contrast with those who profess some false religion or no religion at all. So there's almost... We're almost blend in too much. This is this is not true of everyone, of course, but I think for the number of those for whom it is not true, it's so small as to be inconsiderable. I think for most of us, even traditional Catholics, unfortunately, there's no clear line of demarcation between our manner of life and reacting and dealing and viewing everyday life and that of of, of the people, the worldly people, disciples of the world, really. And little by little. The Catholic faith is ceasing to influence our, our ideas and judgments. And this is, this is tragic for the spiritual life because you're not going to become a saint unless you think with the Catholic mind. Uh, you have to be inundated with the Catholic spirit to become a saint. Um, but unfortunately today, the, the life of even a good Catholic is, um, the word you could use is compartmentalized. There's compartments in our life. And religion is kept in its own uh, tightly sealed compartment away from every your everyday life, that it's almost like it's just a thing for Sundays um, and not the rest of your life. And, and basically you're acting in the practical order that religion has no place in the everyday life and that the spiritual life is, is just for saints, just for, for some people, but not for everybody. And that's, that's most unfortunate because it's always been been the truth that the Catholic faith um, is really the secret source of of a deeply soul satisfying interior life, a life that is really a life. Yeah, well, also, I think um, that's a. Or I was just going to say, Father, I think that's a, a very uh, important point that's worth making repeatedly. Uh, 
and all of us, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's something that we all have to be conscious of, I think, and constantly fighting against and always working on our spiritual life and working on integrating the mm-hmm. faith into our lives because I'd say pretty much all of us have been raised right. to one degree or another to compartmental our right. li- compartmentalize our lives in that way. And um, mm-hmm. we can't forget that we are products of... Uh, our surroundings, right. so that that so therefore we have to always fight against that and not uh, right. get complacent or you know allow ourselves to right. yeah. to, to not be constantly working on that. Mm-hmm. And I and you know to be honest, I'm saying this of myself as well. I, I'm not pointing at anyone else, but this is preaching to to myself, saying I know that I'm affected by the world. I know that that, that it has poisoned me as well, and I have to fight that uh, that. Even in a monastery, even in there's no wall tall enough or thick enough to keep out the world. It's like it's like water that seeps under the, the drawbridge. It's going to affect everything. But you have to keep fighting against it. Um, that's again the reason why I, I believe spiritual reading is important because it it works like an antidote to that and the sacraments and mass, of course. But we need to fight against that. We have to realize that we are affected by the world, and uh, that's going to to militate against our own spiritual perfection if we don't fight it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think right. I wanted to talk about a little bit that, you know, and Father Lean mentions that in his day, there was this this sense of impending doom, this feeling of futility, something was going to happen. And I think we, we, we have that feeling, I think, today. I know I do. I know many traditional Catholics, most, if not all of them, and many non-Catholics as well, feel that something's coming. There is something on the horizon. We don't know what it is, uh, but there is this sense of, of futility uh, or, or that there is a crisis coming. And most of us think perhaps more from a material point of view, um, but we are going to face a, a shift. Uh, we, we have to be strong in our spiritual life in order to keep our faith because uh, what's, coming, what's coming is going to, to really test our faith. It will separate the goat, goats from the sheep. Uh, the men from the boys, as they say. Uh, so we have to be strong in our faith. We have to nourish our faith with prayer. Uh, uh, you have to make sacrifices um, to practice our faith, to attend Mass, and uh, to, to, to um, uh, frequent the sacraments, or we're going to lose our faith. Uh, it, it, the, the, the nut is going to be, the screw is going to be screwed just a little bit tighter, and uh, we have to, some, some people are, will fall away if not most. Uh, but obviously, <clears throat> no matter what happens, we don't know what's going to happen, but we have to be spiritually prepared that if the world were to end today or to ra- drastically change, we have to keep our faith. Uh, but we have to plan, of course, and work as though the world will continue on for another hundred or years or a thousand years or whatever. We, we have to be prudent, but we have to be prepared um, for, for a shift I think this feeling uh, that something is coming, uh, I know people would call Father Abbott all the time, all over the country. They would all say the same things. They wouldn't be talking to each other, but they would all say the same things to him. Something's going to happen, isn't it, Father? Something, I can feel it in the air, uh, that this can't continue. The world cannot continue the exact same way it's going. Uh, we're, we're building up to this head, um, and even non-Catholics would say it. But I think we could use this feeling for good. I think it's good because this life is not meant to last forever. We're not meant to seek our heaven on earth. We're, 
We're not meant to achieve a natural utopia here on Earth, uh, where God is on the back burner. Um, so this feeling of futility, this feeling that there's something going to happen, uh, should lead us to the conviction that the only good that we must seek with our whole heart in this life is spiritual perfection, that laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven, uh, um, uh, striving to stamp our, our ordinary workaday lives uh, with an extraordinary spiritual perfection, with a supernatural charity. Uh, and this really is the only thing that negates that feeling of futility in life is that, that what I do has value for eternity. Because everything in this world passes. Everything passes in this world. We're, we're going to go to the grave with nothing anyways, eventually. Except the only thing you take with you is your state of your soul. How much grace is in your soul? What degree of sanctifying grace? How much love for God is in your heart? How much supernatural virtue? How much devotion to God? That's the only thing that, uh, the only treasure that nothing in this world can take away. And death will not take away. But you'll go to the grave with, with that. Um, so I think we can use that if there is a feeling of, of, of impending doom that something's going to happen, let it, let's use it for a, a, a good uh, fruit of, of spiritual perfection, aiming for, for sanctity, because that's the only thing you're going to take with you. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the, the one uh, French writer, Leon Bloy. He had a famous line that life's only tragedy is not to have become a saint, because that was the purpose of life. And right. so many of us, so many people, and Father Lean repeats this over and over in his works, that so many people leave this world and stumble into eternity, spiritual failures. And many people reach their grave without, e without even knowing why they're here in the first place, much less reaching spiritual perfection. They, don't even, they haven't even started on the journey. Uh, and for us Catholics, we're told the purpose of life, even... It's, it's, it's even told us in the catechism to a little child uh, that we're, we're made to know and to love and serve God in this life so as to be happy with him forever in the next. That's basically what the spiritual life is. It's living that truth. Right. Well, uh, we're just approaching the top of the hour. So for those of you just joining us, you're listening to The Spiritual Life on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Nicholas Wansbutter, and I'm joined by Father Bernard Utley. And uh, today we've been... Uh, discussing uh, Father Edward Lean who, and his book, uh, The Holy Ghost, that uh, we'll be discussing over the next few shows. So uh, the uh, first part of the show, we talked about a little bit of the biography of Father Lean, and we've been discussing his introduction to uh, this work, The Holy Ghost. We want to remind you that the spiritual life is um, <clears throat> a production of the Restoration Radio Network, all rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. However, permission can very often very easily be obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, that show identification out of the way, Father. Uh, okay. uh, perhaps we can continue with Father Lena. Yeah, some of the points that he brings up. Father Lean says that uh, that uh, in his day, I think even in our own day, we can say that we can say that uh, many souls are starting to wake up and realize that our religion has to mean far more than us than just routine, just just 
there's a growing dissatisfaction with the mere routine practice of our faith. Uh, and there's a growing dissatisfaction with the pleasures of the world. And Father Lean mentions the, in his day that there was a growing interest with regard to the interior life of the soul. And there was. There really was a growing interest. And many, many spiritual, great spiritual books were written, like I said, between 1900 and 1960, even before that a little bit, of course. But especially between those time periods, uh, there was a revival uh, uh, and a resurrection of some of the traditional doctrines in regard to contemplation and the higher stages of the mystical life. And great authors emerged, um, like uh, the Spanish-Dominican uh, theologian Father John Aaron Terrell wrote beautiful works on, on contemplation and the mystical life. You have Father August Sodrew, beautiful spiritual works. You have Father Tanqueray, uh, Father Gabriel of St. Mary Magdalene. A lot of people know his book, Divine Intimacy. You have the Jesuit Father Raoul Plou, uh, Father uh, uh, Victorino Ascende, and there's tons of spiritual writers that were just great. They were just inspired. There was a revival at the time of just interest in the spiritual life. And I think some of that revival was due to um, the the life and teaching of St. Therese of the Child Jesus. I believe she died in uh, 1897, the age of 24, but she did create a, a revival of interest in in uh, spiritual doctrine and that the spiritual life is meant for everyone. And it doesn't, it's, it, you don't have to be extraordinary. You don't, you don't have to live extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary life to become a saint that you become saint by the little things done with great love. And her doctrine of, of spiritual childhood really created, I think a stir and interest in the hearts of lay people uh, and a hunger for the spiritual life. Um, and this hunger doesn't mean that, it's not always a good sign that things are going well. I think, I think this hunger was really there because things were not well with regard to this interior life. It, you know, it's when you have plumbing problems is when there's a flood of how-to books on plumbing. Uh, it, it, it's an age of pop psychology, self-help books, when you have the most mentally and emotionally messed up people. So it is something out there that, that, that um, is um, indicative of, of a problem that there is hunger out there. So there is a demand for those books. And so, yes, I think before Vatican II, there were great books on theology uh, and on the spiritual life out there. But unfortunately, not enough people study, studied them and absorbed them and lived them as they should have. And sometimes we wonder, if there's all these great spiritual books, why did it, why was there a crisis still in the 1960s? It's because people didn't take their medicine. They didn't live their faith. Uh, they didn't, it was there, the books were there, the medicine was there, but if you don't take it, it's not going to cure you. And that's what happened. Uh, unfortunately, um, it wasn't heated. Uh, sanctity, maybe were, it was pursued by, by a small handful of devout lay people, but generally, uh, apparently, people didn't take advantage of it. But in any case, there was <laughs> that, uh, that hunger, a, a dissatisfaction in the more reflective people uh, with the the mere routine and external practice of religion. <clears throat> and on this, this topic, I did want to quote a few paragraphs of Father Lean, because uh, I believe it applies to many traditional Catholics as well in our own days. So um, with that, I wanted just to quote a few chapters. Quote, Hence it is that on the part of numbers of individual Catholics, there may be clearly discerned a decided change of attitude towards their faith, there can be detected in many quarters a groping after the deeper realities of the spiritual life 
and an increasing dissatisfaction with a mere superficial and routine practice of religion. Amidst the cries of distress that go up on all sides all over the earth, there may be caught a note that tells of a hunger, the pangs of which are more bitter than those caused by the want of bread. Bodies are hungry, it is true, but souls are hungry too, and the hunger of the soul is far more torturing than that of the body. Those who have not lost the faith feel the pangs of this hunger as well as those who have, though they feel it in a different way. The former, that is, ordinary routine Christians, have been seeking for life outside of and apart from their religion. Their search, in fact, has been directed along those very ways trodden by those who have no aspirations beyond this earth. The search is fruitless and yields nothing but weariness and disillusionment. Such souls are typified by the Samaritan woman introduced to his um, introduced by St. John in the fourth chapter of his gospel. Like her, day by day, they have gone to draw at the sources of satisfaction created by the toil of man. The Samaritan woman calling the Savior's attention to the fact that it is to a man's industry, namely Jacob's, that she and her people were indebted for the source of water by which he was seated, said to him, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well? Like the Samaritan, Christians, whose conduct is not inspired by their faith, come again and again to taste what men and their devices can give, only to find themselves tormented by an ever-increasing thirst. Their cravings remain unsatisfied, and they find themselves eventually a prey to a great weariness of existence. Their religion is not unlike that of the woman of Samaria. It is mostly external, traditional, and things of rites and ceremonies and places of worship. To the mind of the Samaritan woman, Worship is not of so much importance as, it, as is its form and place. She was greatly concerned to know whether her sacrifices were to be offered on Mount Gerizim or on Mount Sion. So too are to be found numbers of Christians who are gravely preoccupied about the due acquittal of self-imposed religious observances and the due fulfillment of certain devotions of their own choosing, but who neglect the main things of the law, justice, charity, and filial obedience to God's will, unquote. And I wanted to make a note here what Father Lean is saying. Father Lean is not saying here that traditional rites and practices are not important, but they're not the heart of the law. And we as traditional Catholics can also fall into the trap of simply going through the motions. You're following the letter of the law without living the spirit of the law, of neglecting the essentials of the law. But just, but just because the spirit of law is more important doesn't mean that you can jettison the letter of the law. But it is the spirit of the law which will sanctify you. Going through the motions will not save you, will not sanctify you. Merely being a Sunday Catholic who comes to Mass because that's just what we do. We just come to Mass on Sundays. Or we come to Mass, we come to the traditional Mass because we like the Latin and the incense and the vestments. That's not enough. There has to be something going on inside of us. And there is an old priest, uh, I won't say his name, uh, he once told my abbot that it was his conviction that 70% of those who attend his traditional chapel don't really have the faith. That's shocking. He said, I don't really think they have the faith. And I think this could probably be said of many, many traditional Catholic chapels. People come out of routine, out of a mere preference for the Latin Mass for some reason. But how many really get it? How many really understand? How many have the faintest idea of the interior life? And, and how, many, how many even pursue spiritual perfection at all? And, and, and of course, there's some, and, and of course, there's some truly faithful Catholics, of course. But I think there is a, there's much room for improvement, much room for growth in that way.
And uh, let me um, continue with Father Lean here. Uh, I just want to quote a few more paragraphs of him and then go on, comment on it. Uh, Quote, the way of escape from this weariness and dissatisfaction is that pointed out by Jesus to the woman of Samaria. It lies in this, namely that men no longer remain on the surface and halt at the exterior of things. It lies in going deep down into, exploring the riches and in utilizing the resources of the religion given to men by Jesus Christ. It is not in the resources of the world, but in the hidden resources of their faith that men shall find refreshment, light, and peace. In a word, life. An instinctive prompting of divine origin is moving souls to turn for a real existence to an intense interior life. They realize that hitherto, their faith, the Christian faith, was not all to them that it could and should have been. Many are beginning to understand that the faith is communicated to men by the Redeemer, chiefly for this purpose, namely that they may be admitted to a participation of God's own divine life and helped to progress in that life. This explains the growing interest in the interior life, its laws, its manifestations, its means of progress, that has been, has been such a characteristic of recent years. It is evidenced by the great wealth of literature dealing ex professo with the spiritual life as that has been its appearance in the last decade or two. The great supply testifies to the wide demand and a very keen interest. It is characteristic of God that his answer to the challenge of naturalism of the age should be a marked intensification of the supernatural life in those who remain faithful to him. Unquote. So, Nicholas, I think just as the answer to the modernism around us is faithful adherence to traditional Catholic doctrine, so I think the answer or the antidote to the materialism and to the naturalism all around us and the natural tendency of the modern church, naturalistic tendency of the modern church is the intense commitment to our supernatural religion because our religion is a supernatural religion. Sanctity is supernatural, and that is what will cure the world. Uh, first, you ha- must have orthodoxy. You must have truth, the truth, but then you must have sanctity. We need both truth and holiness, and we need more Catholic saints. We need to become saints for ourselves, and for this, we need to live an intense spiritual life, and that is the heart of our faith. And when this heart stops beating, we're dead. This, we're more or less dead. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said that The faith has not failed. It is simply that it's rarely really lived. It hasn't been tried and found wanting. It's been rarely tried, except for the few saints. And if one lives the faith, then the fruit will be sanctity of life. Um, Saints are really the greatest apologetic for the faith. The greatest defense of the faith is downright sanctity. And that is why we need saints. One, One Padre Pio, one Catherine of Siena, is worth a million books, a million articles, or a million debates, or talks defending the faith, or talking about the faith, or explaining the faith. One saint does that, and that is why we need saints. Why we, and in order to become a saint, you need the spiritual life. And I think, implicitly, that's why Father Lean wrote this book on the Holy Ghost. He wanted to present the supernatural truths of our holy religion as an antidote to the naturalism that is widely being accepted uh, as the philosophy of life. And was obviously I, I, already uh, deeply entrenched in the 30s, even. Right. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of this, uh, 
uh, like you have um, uh, talked about in other of the radio shows in True Restoration is that uh, the faith has been attacked for centuries. <laughs> and so this process of, uh, of, of undermining the Catholic principles has been going on for centuries. It's just where we're living through the fruits of that today. Uh, but it, it's still in any time period, there's always, there's always bad time periods in the church. There's always, there's always worldliness in, in, in Catholics. Uh, but always the answer is sanctity, uh, holiness of life. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he, I, I suppose even during the middle ages, they still had the world, the flesh and the devil that one had to, right. Right. Had to struggle against. Right. Um, <clears throat> so, um, Father, perhaps uh, then we should uh, move into the first chapter of, uh, of this book, or was there a, a further? Yeah, further there, there is something I, I do want to deal with, um, and Father Lean doesn't deal with this uh, too too much, but I, I did feel that it's necessary to go into a topic before we get into chapter one. I, I wanted to talk about something that Father Lean does mention, he does refer to in the introduction, but I really think it needs some elaboration. He refers to uh, a natural, that natural supernatural hunger of the soul, and any soul, and all souls, uh, experience a hunger, a dissatisfaction with creatures, uh, with mere pleasure. Uh, and I think this hunger is one of the best starting points to lead souls into the pursuit of the spiritual life, because everyone, if you're honest, you experience that hunger. If you're reflective, you experience the hunger. And I just want to talk about this before we get into chapter one. So I found this personally uh, an, an important starting point for the spiritual life. <clears throat> so, you know, life uh, seems to be a, a continual searching after that which will satisfy our inner cravings for rest. Uh, we're restless beings, uh, only we find that nothing ever truly satisfies our soul. Nothing really, at least not for long. No earthly satisfaction, no pleasure, no thrill, no possession. Everyone experiences this. Oh, yeah, we can, be, we can be happy for a little while, but then again we're hungry again the next day or the next month. And that perfect happiness is always uh, uh, just beyond our grasp. And this is... There's something that, that occurs in life that we have to reflect on. Why does that happen? Why do we go through that? We're all like little children eagerly waiting for Christmas. And when Christmas finally arrives and after we have opened all our presents and we've eaten all our goodies that we've wanted to and we've, we've become bored. We've become bored with our new toys. We've become, we know deep down that something's missing, that somehow nothing in this world has lived up to our expectations. And how ardently we, we look forward to something, yet almost always our pleasure is always greater in anticipation than in realization. And when you have obtained what you coveted, or you, you felt that desired pleasure, or you experienced that new thrill, did it ever give us the happiness that we thought it would? It never really does. Perhaps to a certain degree. Perhaps to a certain degree, yes. But there's always a feeling in the back of our mind, Yes, that was great. That was wonderful. But is that all? Is that all there is? And uh, that is gone now. Every joy that we experience is taken from us. 
and we are hungry again. We're never perfectly satisfied in this life, never perfectly happy. Um, and we don't realize this. We don't realize this hunger um, until you, you do experience some of those peak moments of, of, of joy in this life. Uh, you realize this isn't heaven. This isn't meant to be heaven. We're never perfectly satisfied. There's always, even when we are perfectly satisfied, even there's, there's, there, there are, there's truly noble joys that we experience in this life. There's the noble joys of, of marriage, uh, of a family life, or whatever. And, and there is relatively great happiness in that. But it's never perfect happiness. There's always mixed, uh, mixed with some pain, some anxiety. And, and that happens because we're not supposed to be perfectly satisfied in this life. We're supposed to seek our, 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 our happiness in God alone. And so nothing in this life can, can satisfy us. Um, it, it, unfortunately, this experience of never being perfectly satisfied with anything in this world <clears throat> is, um, uh, it, it, it leads pe- some people to become even more worldlier. Instead of turning them religious, they become worldlier, and they think the purpose of this life is just to get the most fun out of it, the most pleasure out of it. And life becomes the incessant quest for a good time, uh, and they're always searching just for, for another pleasure, another excitement, another something to fill them up. Um, and, and, but unfortunately, this philosophy of life, of just searching after pleasure, uh, you experience... Uh, what's called the law of diminishing returns, that the more we pursue mere pleasure in this life, the less you actually enjoy something. It's like a drug addict. Each dose has less of an effect than before, and you have to increase the dosage to get the same thrill. The more pleasure we seek, the less joy we get out of it. We have to seek God, and then you have more joy in even the common pleasures of life. And and people who 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 seek only pleasure in this world. Um, they blame everyone and everyone else for their unhappiness. And they think that if only I had something else, I'd be happy. Some people think, if only I had another husband, or if only I had another wife, if only I had another job, or only if I lived in another city, or if only I had more money or more health, I would, I would be happy. But you're never happy. And if those things made you happy, they learn. We know by experience that nothing in this world really makes us happy. Uh, the list could go on and on. If wealth and fame brought happiness, then why is it that celebrities and millionaires are often the very ones that are in the deepest pit of unrest and depression um, and often commit suicide? They have everything this world can offer, but they're empty. If, if sex and drugs brought lasting happiness, then then really. Uh, prostitutes and drug addicts should be swimming in an ocean of happiness and peace, but they're not because those things do not fill that spiritual hunger in our soul. And the list could go on and on. Um, so this is a good point, though, that in one way or another, everyone in this life is seeking peace and happiness. And the only difference lies in what one thinks true happiness consists of. Um, even a sinner in seeking uh, is seeking happiness and it's sin, but sin never makes someone happy, at least not for long. Uh, it, it's like we're always chasing mirages in this life. Uh, and, and as soon as we grab the mirage, as soon as we approach the, that mirage, it disappears. It's gone. It's like 
grasping at uh, beautiful empty bubbles. And as soon as you grab it, they pop into nothingness the moment they're grabbed. And that's what life, unfortunately, that's, that's, that's part of the experience of this life, that we become most hungry when we thought we'd be most satisfied. And everything in this world leaves the soul incomplete and desiring more. This is just a fact of existence. Some people are more reflective and, and realize that, um, but it, it is a fact of life. Um, and I'm not saying that there's not great, great, there can be some great happiness in this world and great joy. Of course there is, but never perfect happiness, never perfect completion and satisfaction. There's always mixed in a little anxiety, a little pain, a little unrest. And that's very important uh, because God, God put that in there. Because, so we never are totally satisfied except in him. We're never totally satisfied uh, in creatures. And St. Augustine says this, that it's not wrong to, to seek this happiness. You're supposed to, he says this, seek what you seek, but it's not where you seek it. You have to look somewhere else. You have to, it's not in the possessions that will fill you up. And the reason why we're disappointed with this world uh, and 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 all the, the the material things, and even even the even the noble joys of this world, is because our soul yearns for something beyond this world. We have a soul uh, that is capable of uh, of of desiring more and more. It's it's like in the soul there is this 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 infinite abyss. And it cannot be filled with anything finite. We have this infinite whole. Um, we can always desire more. So that is, that is an important point because only the infinite God can fill that infinite whole in us. Nothing material, nothing finite can fill us. Only one spirit can fill us. And that is the infinite God. Spirit of God Himself, whose infinite truth and beauty and goodness and love, uh, as Saint Augustine so beautifully put it, uh, and this is his most famous line, probably the most famous line uh, outside of Scripture, and I'm sure everyone has heard it: "Thou hast made us for Thyself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in Thee." And really, I think this whole theme. Of, of the restlessness of, of souls is not reflected enough, not presented enough, uh, except St. Augustine goes into it, and there's another author, C.S. Lewis, talks about it, but, but it doesn't get talked about enough. And we, every soul desires something. We don't know what it is, but there's something that this world cannot give. And I, you could sum it up really in the line of St. Paul, the eye has not seen, nor the ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man. That's what we want. We want that, whatever that is. And what that is, is God. It, we, it's not so much a thing, it's a person. We, 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 we hunger for God without even knowing it sometimes. But that hunger is put in us by God in order to be satisfied by him. And so this, the, the secret uh, is to take that hunger and to know where to satisfy it. And that is really... The, the, of the secret is entering deeply within our holy religion and, and, and to, to uh, seek union with God because that is the only way we're going to have any peace, any real joy in this life. Even in this life, though, 
even the spiritual life will not perfectly satisfy every uh, desire of your soul, all the natural cravings. Uh, but it, it, it does satisfy you to a certain degree, and, but it, it, and God satisfies you. He fills you up, and then he increases your hunger. Then he fills you up more. Then he increases your hunger and fills you up, unlike the world where it just increases your hunger without satisfying it. But God will satisfy it. Uh, but that's really that's really the secret. That's the starting point for the spiritual life is that, that this world never satisfies us. It, it's not enough. And the saints knew this. Uh, they tried the world, and it failed them, and they rejected the world, and, and God did not fail them. Hmm. And this is, this is why we have to pray, because prayer, in a sense, feeds on God. The soul, the soul is hungry for God. Uh, the food that we're craving is God himself. And prayer feeds on God. God is the soul's nourishment, as it were. Um, and this applies, of course, to Holy Communion. But in a wide sense, all prayer is communion with God. This is what we're after. Um, and this is what the saints knew. They, they really lived the spiritual life uh, for that reason, because growing in the spiritual life, it, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not a matter of simply adding another novena to your prayer schedule. And this is what I wanted to especially get get across in these radio talks is that I'm not here to just present another devotion to people. Just try this novena, try that chaplet, try that prayer. Uh, the spiritual life is deeper than that. That's uh, uh, The interior life is not so much in devotions, but devotion. Not so much in prayers, but in prayer. Not so much in a, a, a multiplicity of pious practices, but in the simplicity and unity of a whole life, live close to God. That practically every action of your life, every thought, every breath is done for God, in the presence of God. And as we talk about the latter stages of the spiritual life, it, the spiritual life is so interior, so deep, so radically soul-changing, that you barely, you're barely the same person at the end. And yet on the surface of your daily life. You continue living an ordinary daily life, but it's hiding a very intense interior life with God. That's really what the Holy Family of Nazareth lived, a very holy interior life, but it was hidden under an ordinary externals. And one day, when we study some of the more advanced stages in the spiritual life, you'll see that, wow, uh, the, the sky's the limit when it comes to spiritual progress. Most people have no idea of, of what the spiritual life entails, what the potential, the potential for union uh, gives us. St. Teresa of Avila, some of her uh, advanced stages in the spiritual life, what she experienced and what she, she wrote about in her books, blow us away. That progress in spiritual life is not just adding more and more external practices. It is becoming more united with God interiorly in your soul. And that is almost beyond words, the union which the spiritual life can give us. It's, very, it's an undiscovered country that most people never have any clue that's out there uh, of that interior experiences of union with God. St. Teresa of Avila said that some of those greater unions with God, some of those ecstasies that she had, those transforming unions uh, later in her life, was so wonderful, was almost like heaven on earth. And that it compensated for all the suffering. She suffered greatly. But one second of those, that experience of union with God compensated for all her sufferings. It was like it was nothing. And so 
really uh, the spiritual life. It, it's like a, a treasure hidden in the field. It is. It is. It is worth. It is worth all the effort that we go through in this life to attain those um, more advanced stages of union with God. That God wants to share with us. God wants to be united with us. And so, I'll, I'll close this introduction here. Is that uh, um, Father Lean? Uh, concludes this introduction by saying that the great work of sanctification of souls is is attributed to the Holy Ghost, or appropriated, to use the technical term. And so it's only reasonable to want to know more about the Holy Ghost and his work in our souls. Uh, so he promotes the spiritual life, and since the Holy Ghost is the author of sanctification, he is, um, it is attributed to him, the sanctification of souls, we should le- want to learn more about uh, this divine person, and so we can we can uh, again we can we can move on to chapter one. Right. I well, talked, uh, <laughs> talked a long time and just in the introduction. Yeah, although those were uh, very important points, and uh, I mean it really says the the whole reason why we're doing this show and why it's so important. So uh, I'm glad you uh, restrained me in my enthusiasm to get into uh, chapter one because, there, but. Um, when I say enthusiasm, I might not sound it because I'm so sick, but uh, uh, I, I, I mean, chapter one is already packed with uh, some really yep. great material, so that's why I was wanting to get into that. And um, perhaps if I could get you to start with talking about uh, Father Lean's discussion of what is meant when we say God is good, uh, because uh, okay. his explanation of that I found um, mm-hmm. really eye-opening. Yeah. Um, yeah, and this chapter it's entitled, chapter one is entitled, The First Mode of God's Love, His Loving Kindness to His Creatures. And in this chapter, Father Lean begins by explaining what we mean by God's goodness. Because in Catholic theology, the mystery of God's goodness is far deeper and richer than it normally means for the ordinary faithful. Many people say, oh, God is good, but they don't realize what they're saying. They don't realize all that this truth entails. And so I, I will be so bold as to say that ultimately the whole spiritual life, the whole meaning of life, the purpose of life is ultimately based on God's goodness. We exist because God is good. We must seek God because he is infinitely good. He's the whole purpose of life. <laughs> the whole purpose of life is to obtain God's infinite goodness. And we seek heaven because God is good. Heaven is heaven because God is infinite goodness. And so we have to understand, what do we mean by God's goodness? Uh, if the whole basis and reason for the spiritual life is simply because God is good, what does this mean? Uh, no statement could seem more simple and yet contain so much truth. But in order to understand the full implications of, of, by what we mean of God's infinite goodness, we have to briefly analyze, and I will analyze a little bit with Father Lean's help, what the word good means philosophically. So really... Again, we have to sometimes go into philosophy because we have to define our terms. We have to clearly think things through. Philosophy is the the the, the handmaid of theology, and theology uh, can sanctify us when applied to our daily lives. So, but sometimes you have to go into philosophy. So, but when you deal with such basic concepts, such universal concepts as goodness and being and truth and beauty, things. Things can quickly become a little bit too abstract, so hopefully I'll just keep this brief. <laughs> what do we mean when we say something is good? 
Basically, something is good when it adequately fulfills a purpose or when it supplies a need or it satisfies a want. And that is that it has some element that is capable of perfecting us in some way. For example, a knife is good when it cuts well. It's a good knife. A pen is good when it can write well. And food is good if it gives adequate nourishment, etc. So we use goodness all the time. We, we, we use that of everything. And for example, when we're hungry and we look out at a, at a fresh apple, that apple is seen as good for us because it will satisfy our hunger, or at least part of it for some time. And it is desirable precisely because it is seen as good. And this applies to everything around us. Everything that is desirable in any way has a certain goodness about it that we can desire. Not necessarily a moral goodness, but it is a good for our needs. And anything a creature pursues is a good, or at least is seen as a good for that creature. Not all goods are real. Some are apparent goods. If it is something which the creature, which we ought to seek, and which therefore completes or perfects us, then it's a real good. Otherwise, it's an apparent good. Uh, For example, suppose you looked at a fresh apple and you saw its goodness, and we desired it. But suppose it was poisoned. Then it would only be an apparent good for us, not a real good, because it would poison us. But it it still remains that we can only desire something if we see it as a good for us. Even sin, even sin is seen as a good for us at the moment or else we could not choose it. Uh, again, it's not a moral good, but it's a good that we think that this, this experience or this whatever, uh, uh, this possession will, will supply a need that will perfect us and make us happy. And that's why we desire it. Uh, um, but often we desire what is only an apparent good. For instance, uh, when we desire sin, sin in itself, uh, it draws us away from God, which is a real evil. So, but it remains true that nothing would appeal to us unless we saw it as good for in some way. No one chooses evil as evil, uh, <clears throat> but only when you see it as good. Even someone say, for instance, when they when they choose uh, suicide, for instance, and for the sin of suicide, it's not because they want to kill themselves in itself. They want to seek the good of of avoiding the trials of life, and that's why they choose suicide because they they. They see that as a good for them, although it's a, only an apparent good because they, they committed a real evil. So, But it, it remains true that we only desire what we see as good. Now, to acknowledge, acknowledge that a thing is good is to recognize that, that it has a power of attraction for us. It has a capacity to appeal to us. Um, but that, that attractive force doesn't force us to choose it. But we couldn't choose it unless it had that attractive power. Um, But when we yield ourselves, when we surrender ourselves to that attraction, when we choose that good, that's what it means when you love something. Love is a choice. It is to choose that object, to see that goodness, and to say, I want that, and I, and, uh, uh, I choose that. And to love a person, for example, Father Lean tells us, it's to decide that such a person is one's choice or selection amongst others who may be attractive, maybe they have a certain charm, but you chose that person, and therefore you love them. And the lovable person, uh, we, we, we often say, oh, that person is so lovable, it's, it's the one who, because of all the excellent qualities uh, uh, or disposition that person is possessed of, it's, 
that person is capable of drawing forth the movement of love in others. That's why our Lord is so lovable. He, he was so attractive. His goodness just shone, shone forth, and it, it drew people to him. It had that attractive quality. And so Father Lean's Father Lean here, his definition of love is simply this, that love is the free surrender of the will to the attraction exercised on it by some good or goodness perceived to be present in person or, th- or things. <clears throat> now, some of this might seem a little abstract, uh, uh, but it does have an application to the spiritual life. Uh, and and, and it, eventually it will, it will ultimately help us understand to a certain degree even the very life of God, the very uh, interior life of God and the Holy Trinity. <clears throat> but throughout all creation, God has left uh, fingerprints all over creation, little hints and clues as to his own inner life. He can't help it. The, the artist always reveals himself in his art. And this interplay between goodness and love is found all over creation, from even the love of a bee for a certain flower all the way to a love of a man for a certain woman or, or whatever, good, whatever uh, interplay between goodness and attraction, that this leads us all the way up to the Holy Trinity where you have the love of the Eternal Father for His only begotten Son in the Holy Ghost. So really, um, uh, this attraction between good, uh, the goodness that attracts us and that, the surrendering to it, which is love, it's all over the place. Uh, it takes place every day in our lives. And so in philosophy, we just reflect on that, that experience, and we, we draw meaning from it, and we understand it. <laughs> so the good draws us like a magnet. It, 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 goodness ha- has a magnetic pull. Um, and when you come into contact with goodness, when something that is so attractive comes into your life, you're restless until you can have it, and you desire to go out of yourself, as it were, towards that object. And this is why love is called ecstatic, because ecstatic comes from the Greek word ecstasis. It means to stand out of yourself. Uh, it, it's you want to go out of yourself to to get that goodness, to get that one object that it, you see as good. And this happens every day, um, in one degree or another. Uh, Father Lean uh, says this. Uh, quote him. Every element of goodness that there is in things, everything, therefore, that has power to exercise an attraction comes originally from God. If anything draws to itself, if anything stirs affection, if anything calls forth the movement of love, it is because it possesses a quality which is a participation of the infinite goodness or lovableness of God. <clears throat> Unquote. That may seem a little abstract, but let me talk about that. What does that mean? Think about it. Think about what he said, that every element of goodness that you see in things comes originally from God. Everything in creation which could possibly satisfy you or fulfill you in any way or draw love from you, every person, every good quality you see in a person, every place that is beautiful, everything that is attractive, all that goodness, that drawing power is is from God is originally found in God in an infinite degree. God is the source of all goodness. Every, uh, every beauty you see in the world, for example, as well, every beauty uh, you see in creatures, from the beauty of a rose or a sunset or a beautiful human, uh, a friend, uh, a loved one, 
all that attractive quality is just a faint reflection of God's infinite goodness and beauty. That creatures are only partially good, only relatively good to some measure, but God is absolute goodness. He is infinite good itself. And if we were to see God face to face, he would be so attractive that it would be impossible for us to choose anything else or anyone else other than God and this vision. And this vision of God, if we were to see God, it would perfectly satisfy us. And this is <clears throat> this is maybe getting uh, to the topic too quickly, but this is what really the beatific vision will be. It is seeing God face to face. It is possessing this, this being of infinite goodness. You're going to possess goodness itself, and that will perfectly satisfy you. Because in this life, we are satisfied a little bit by the little goodness that we receive from, say, uh, from the goodness we find in an apple. But when you think that you will possess the source of all goodness in creation, that's what heaven will be. He is our supreme good. That's what God is called, our supreme good. And nothing else in this life is worth jeopardizing, losing, that, to, to obtaining that supreme good um, uh, in, in, in <clears throat> um, so that's why it, it's important to understand this concept of goodness and love because this is a really a starting point for the spiritual life. If you look out in creation, if some of these things satisfy you, then think of what it will mean when you possess the source of all that satisfaction. And that is what the saints learned. They said, why be satisfied with mere crumbs when I can have the source? People think it's crazy. Uh, to fall in love with God, but it's not crazy to fall in love with a mere creature who has only a little bit of beauty. Why, why is it crazy to fall in love with beauty itself? Uh, why, is it, why is it crazy to, to absolutely dedicate your life to goodness itself and to truth itself? That's the only sane thing to do. Um, everything in creation is only relatively good, and so everything in creation only deserves a relative love. But God is absolutely good, and only God deserves absolute love. And that is why um, we have the commandment to love God with all our heart and with all our soul, because he's, he's the only thing worthy of our complete, absolute, um, perfect love of everything we have. My, my point in this is that all the goodness in this world is a gift from God. It is meant to bring us to God. It's meant to reflect Him. Uh, he, he wants us to use the good things of this world properly uh, to bring us to Himself. But unfortunately, people be, become so satisfied with the gifts of the giver that they forget the giver. And that's unfortunate. But He wants eventually to give you that perfect satisfaction in heaven. He wants to fill your soul with himself and to um, perfectly satisfy every craving and every, every desire that your soul could possibly ever want. Uh, he wants to give you that perfect satisfaction in heaven. Now, <clears throat> um, now Father Lean, uh, he, he, he makes reference to something our Lord said in the Gospels of, of St. Matthew and St. Mark. Our Lord said, someone came to our Lord and, and addressed him as good master. And our Lord replied, 
His reply often puzzles us. He said, our Lord said, why callest me good? None is good but one, that is God. And what is he saying here? Was he denying that he was good? Was he denying that he was God? No, precisely the opposite, actually. This ruler didn't believe that our Lord was God. So, so our Lord was, was, was getting him to realize that, yes, uh, if you call me good, it's because I am God. For no one is good but God. All goodness comes from God. God is the source of all goodness. And Father Lean believes that our Lord implied um, that he used the word good in the sense that I just talked about, that God is the source of all goodness, that God alone is truly good. And everything in this world that has some goodness, some attractive qualities, is only a faint reflection of the infinite goodness of God. Um, and Father Lean wasn't uh, alone in that interpretation of, of that, that uh, saying of our Lord, that God alone is good, because he is. Now, I wanted to just talk about that uh, when we surrender to what we see as good, that is what holiness is. That is what love is. Excuse me. That is what love is. And since God is, God alone is infinite goodness, God alone uh, is worthy of our greatest love. And to love God, to choose him, uh, in preference to every created person, and every place, everything, every experience, to choose him is to love God. And that choice, that surrendering to that attractive quality of God's goodness, that's really what holiness is. That's really, when you get down to it, that's what holiness is. When we say God is holy, most people don't realize what we mean, what we mean by when we say God is holy. Um, God is, is holiness itself. What, what is God's holiness? God's holiness consists in his own love for himself. And that's, a, that's a, when I came across this, I thought, I, I don't get that. But over time, you understand that, that God is holy because he loves himself because he is worthy of love. You know, on the surface of it, when you hear that uh, uh, God is holy because he loves himself, you think, Boy, that, that sounds like pride. That sounds like an immense egoism. But we misunderstand the meaning of pride. Pride is the in, inordinate love of self. It is to love something out of order, in, in a wrong way or too much. But God loves himself because he is worthy of infinite love. He is, he is supreme goodness. And so he loves what is supremely good. And that... that uh, that is God's holiness. God, God is holy because he loves what is infinitely worthy of being loved. Um, and that's what really is a, is a clue to our own holiness. It is simply the essence of holiness is charity. It is to love God with all your heart. Um, before, I need to also go into the next topic and then we'll close this chapter, is that Father Lean wants us to understand in this chapter two aspects of God's goodness, that God is good for us, but he's also good to us. And most of us understand by the term God is good, when we say, oh, God is good, we only mean that God is good to us. He's kind to us. He's generous to us. He provides for us. And that is why I went 
to the, uh, uh, explained the other way of understanding God is good, that God is the good for us. He is the, the, the perfection of our soul. He is, he is our complete, he completes us, as it were. He is our perfection. Um, he is the one, the only thing that can make us perfectly happy. And that is what heaven is all about, to reach that perfect rest and happiness in heaven. God doesn't need us in the slightest way. Uh, anything he does for us is because he loves us, because it's totally unselfish. He gains nothing from, from creation. Uh, he doesn't increase his happiness. We don't increase his happiness in the slightest way. God creates us in order to share his own goodness with us because he loves us so much. He, he wants to share his own happiness with us, but he doesn't get anything out of it for himself. It is pure, unselfish love that he, that he simply wants to seek our good. He wants to share his own beatitude with us, and that is pure, disinterested love. He doesn't need us, but we need him. He doesn't need our love, but we need to love him. We need to love him for our own perfection, our own happiness, we need to love him. And that is why he commands us to love him, uh, because without loving him, you're never going to be happy, never going to be happy. Let me just briefly, I'm running out of time here, but let me go into, um, uh, God is good to us, and you could speak for hours on this topic and all the various ways that God is good to us, but he surrounds us with good things all the time. Every, he gave us life, he gave us existence, all the good things that we experience in life is, is a gift from God. God is our great benefactor. Every, every, every moment of our life is a gift from God. Every, every joy that we experience in this life is a gift from him. Every pleasure that we experience is a gift from him. Now, Father Lean uh, doesn't focus on this general uh, goodness of God towards everyone. He specifically says that God is good not only to his friends, not only to good people in this world, but even to sinners. Even the people that are unworthy of his love, he still, he still loves them. And um, it's true that uh, the relationship between God and the just uh, and one of his friends, it's different than those between God and sinners. But that still, God has, has assured us from Revelation that even, even the sinful, even the in, inconstant, even the weak, even the ungrateful souls are, are not excluded from his mercy and goodness and consideration. That our badness, our evilness, doesn't modify his goodness. He's still good. That uh, God's goodness is like the sun, and the sun can't, can't help but shower light and heat. So God's goodness continues to pour itself out on all creatures in one way or another, one degree or in another. Um, yeah, I thought the uh, comparison that Father Lean uses about the sun is good because he mentions um, how uh, if there's clouds, the sun will still be shining. Right. The clouds won't prevent the sun from shining, and then if the clouds start parting, which I suppose right. could be compared to going to... Uh, confession or in the sun can even sometimes mm -hmm. kind of burn off clouds right even. right right um uh yeah i think it's a good analogy to 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 use that analogy of the sun but that god's goodness in a sense 
has a different uh, an effect on creatures according to the character of the creature. It's like the same sun melts wax but hardens clay. So, so God's relation to us is determined by what we are. God loves the just uh, more than sinners because he sees in, him, in, in the just his own goodness. And he loves them more because he sees more of himself. And God still loves sinners because he sees in them a potential, potential to share his perfection with. So he still loves them, but he, he doesn't love them as sinners. He doesn't love them as, as uh, his enemies, but as potential friends. Um, you know, when, when creatures, I have to uh, sum up quickly here, um, uh, you know, the, the, a just soul, a friend of God, reflects God more. It shares in his goodness more, and therefore God loves them more. But actually, when we love something, when we love some, something as a creature, well, as, a, as a finite being, when we look out on the world and we love something, we, we see something good in that thing, and we love that thing. We love that goodness. But when God loves something, it is because he put that goodness there. And this is why St. Augustine said, God loves us not because we are good, but we are good because, because God loves us. But God still loves sinners because he sees that potential, that possibility of their turning to him. And that, and this is why, no matter where we are in the spiritual life, if we are great sinners and we have a, a past full of sin, we should never despair because God still loves us. He still sees in us that great potential to become a saint. As long as we have breath in our body, we have, we have that possibility of turning to him. And he loves us because of that. He wants to share his happiness with us. And so he still showers us with so many gifts, so many graces. Um, and let me just quote real quickly some of the, some of the lines from Scripture that, 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 uh, that refer to the, the God's love of the sinners, even, of sinners. St. Matthew says, but I, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, our Lord says, But I say to you, do good to them that hate you, that you may be the children of your Father who is in heaven, who maketh his Son to rise upon the good and bad, and reigneth upon the just and the unjust. So if God commands us to, to love, do good to them that hate you, he does that first. He does us good even when we hate him. He says um, in the Psalms, The Lord is gracious and merciful, patient and plenteous in mercy. The Lord is sweet to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. And there's so many different quotes. Uh, St. Paul, God commendeth his charity toward uh, St. John, I believe, the apostle. God commendeth his charity towards us, because when we were as yet, we were sinners, according to the time Christ died for us. So even when we were his enemies, God loves us. So I just want to bring that out because, um, and make another point that some people, they don't understand that God does not love all people equally. And, and to think so would be an error. Obviously, he loves a saint more than a sinner because a saint is closer to him. A saint is a closer friend, more obedient to him, and loves God above all things. Obviously, God loves that more. A sinner, as a sinner, doesn't have friendship with God. Um, but so how, I know this is a common error out there, and especially in the new church, they're taught, oh, just God loves everyone equally. But that's not true. How could anyone imagine that? Obviously, he loves the Blessed Virgin Mary more than me, more than you, more than anyone else. Obviously. Obviously, he loves St. Francis of Assisi more than me. But, and he should, because St. Francis deserves more love than me. Because St. Francis is holy and, and as a closer friend with him, that he reflects our Lord 
uh, more than me. So obviously God loves, that is only uh, just and right, that God loves uh, what reflects him more. Um, unfortunately, I won't have time here to, to uh, quote Father Lean on some of these topics, but um, we can see that when we say God is good, it means more than, than he's just kind to us. God is the good. God is the supreme good for us. Uh, and, and what I want people to understand uh, more than ever in that is that everything in this world is just every goodness that we see is just a faint, a faint reflection of God's infinite goodness. And when we die, when we die, um, uh, when our body is separated from the soul, when, we're, when our soul separates from our body, your soul will not be distracted with the senses. Not be, uh, it will not be distracted by the, the, the material things of this world. And you will, the soul will hunger for its food. Uh, it will hunger for God so intensely. Um, and it will not be distracted from that hunger. You will, you will, you will want God so intensely. Uh, and if you are a friend of God, then you will go to heaven. If you're not quite perfect enough for heaven, that's when you go to purgatory. But you will hunger for God. And if you're an enemy of God, you will be stripped. You will be uh, uh, banished from God's presence. You will not have God. And, but that, that soul in, in hell will have such a hunger for goodness and truth and beauty. And all everything good and everything beautiful and everything true and everything, all love will be stripped from that soul. Imagine, that's what the torture of hell is, is that you were made to attain to that supreme good and now you will never have it. Now you will be hungry and you will never be satisfied for all eternity. But in heaven, when you, if you make it to heaven, you will obtain God, you will possess the supreme good and you will be perfectly happy forever and ever and ever and nothing will take that away from you. And so this is what we mean by God is good. God is the only thing worth seeking in this life. Because if you lose God, you've lost everything worth having. If you get God, you've, you, you have everything worth having. So really, that's the whole basis of the spiritual life is really that fundamental, we have to get God. If we lose God, we have nothing. This life will not satisfy us. Only God can satisfy us. And that is why we pursue a spiritual life. And so just to sum up this chapter is that um, Father Lean in this chapter, he, he explains God's love for creation, uh, that God's love is manifested in creation, all over creation. God manifests his goodness and love for us. Uh, but, but everything in creatures, all the manifestation of God's love in creation is just finite. It's just, just, just a reflection of God's love. It doesn't exhaust his love. Nothing finite can be the perfect reflection of God's goodness and or, or exhaust his love. So uh, we have to then turn to God and say, uh, turn to, to reflect on God's love as it existed from all eternity in itself, the infinite love of God. Uh, and this, is, this brings us to the great mystery of the Holy Trinity, and to that divine person who is uh, divine love personified, the Holy Ghost. And that is why the next chapter is entitled The Holy Ghost, 
is divine love subsistent. Unfortunately, we won't have time to go into the next chapter. I really wanted to speak about the Holy Trinity. I find it one of my, my own favorite doctrines to meditate upon. And exp- I love to explain the doctrine as much as humanly possible when we can explain it. Um, because I believe that if we don't have an exalted view of God, of who he is and what he is, you're not going to desire union with God. If you don't think much of God, then you're not going to desire sanctity. You're not, you're, you're, you're not going to value him very highly. And so next, next, uh, next episode, I do want to talk about um, God's own interior life. We have to understand that God has an interior life, and that is the interior life of the Holy Trinity. It is the basis of our own interior life. And when we get to heaven, if we get to heaven, uh, we will enter into his own interior life and enjoy his own happiness. Um, but that's uh, a topic for next time. Right. Well, yeah, our, our listeners definitely have something to look forward to for next month, Father. So uh, I want to thank you, Father, for taking this time and uh, to discuss with us uh, uh, this first chapter of Father Lean's book and setting a excellent foundation. Uh, really looking forward to what we'll have uh, moving forward. Um, uh, thank you very much. I'm afraid I... I... I spent a long time on certain topics, and uh, um, uh, but uh, we'll just take it slow and, and digest these doctrines slowly. Yeah, well, I, yeah, and I I don't think this is the sort of uh, sort of thing to rush. So uh, I, mm-hmm. that's I think well the way we're dealing with it is uh, a good way of, to to go. So uh, yeah. for any listeners who uh, we, we'd ask you. We've not only solicited uh, help for the Restoration Radio Network, but also uh, Father uh, Bernard, uh, his apostolate, uh, is always in need of assistance as well. Uh, and Or if, also if you want to ask him any questions, uh, the uh, address is uh, Our Lady of Victory Church, 1715 Dundas Street East. That's uh, Dundas is spelled D U N. D A S and that's D as in Delta in both of those. London, Ontario, in Canada, postal code November five whiskey three echo one. And uh so we do uh, ask our listeners to keep our, our guests and their apostolates uh, in mind as well. And um the uh, the next episode will be uh, a month from today. Uh same same time, uh, same place. So we look forward to uh, having with us again. And uh, in addition to seeking help for Father Bernard's work, uh, we at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you find this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, you'd please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. Uh, we certainly don't despise even a... Uh, one dollar donation every little bit helps